All right, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, again, in your Bibles. This week, looking, the, the, the slides actually say verses 19 through 21. We will, in fact, be going through verse 22 this morning. Last time we were together, we considered Paul's warning against striving about words to no profit. People who study the Bible, but not actually to show themselves approved unto God, not to rightly divide the word of truth, but rather reading into the Bible their own priorities, reading into the Bible, picking and choosing their own emphases. Many of us have watched as people have done this, reading into the Bible, majoring on the minors, these sorts of things, which far from bringing men and women into godliness, uh, oftentimes will subvert the hearers, will uh, foster more ungodliness, profanity, vanity, and even in some cases overthrow the faith of some. So many of us have watched this happen in the lives of family, friends. Many of us perhaps, uh, some of us perhaps, have experienced this ourselves, where you have had a season of life where you have been subverted to some degree or another, where you followed some spurious uh, um, interpretation of doctrine that led you down a path uh, into ungodliness, into imbalance, into confusion. And by God's grace, uh, presumably you found your way out of that at some point. And for those who have watched or experienced this process of misinterpretation and profane use of the texts of Scripture, which gives way to ungodliness, for those that have watched the faith of some be overthrown through uh, the subversion of incorrect division of the word of truth, the subversion of striving about words to no profit, it, it can work within us a great measure of concern. A great measure, a great burden in our hearts in relation to this thing. And to that end, we study with a purpose, right? We do not study just to study. Study is not an end in of itself, as we spoke of last week. Study has a purpose, and that purpose is to be approved of God, to rightly divide the word of truth that we may accomplish the purpose unto which God inspired his word not propping up our own ideas, not confirming our own conceptions or misconceptions, but showing ourselves approved that we may not be ashamed or be not ashamed as we rightly divide this word of truth. And as I think upon this, it does and has, and perhaps it does with you as well, fill me with a measure of sorrow. Because the Christian world is, in the broader sense, quite subverted today, isn't it? With vain and profane babblings, with these confusions of dividing the word of God in a manner that is um, striving about words to no profit. And it has indeed led to much ungodliness. And this is the thing which we wish to avoid that we would not mask our ungodliness in a veneer of spirituality or godliness. And in fact, we will study about the nature of this world and how they do this and the warning about this as we get into chapter 3. But today I want us to continue on this thought, this warning about striving about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers, leading to ungodliness, and even overthrowing the faith of some. And within this context, as you can see from our title, I want to give you both a great consolation and then exhort you unto a great determination. First a consolation, then a determination. And as we do so, I'd like to begin by backing up just a little bit in the text, beginning to read in verse 14, and then continuing from there on to verse 19, where we'll pick up our text. The Bible says this, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is 
Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We begin with the consolation this morning, a wonderful reassuring statement that gives us a, a tremendous measure of consolation within the scope of this context. That as we look out at the world and we see those friends or those loved ones or we think back in the past of those who have, we, who, who have gone before us and we have seen striving about words to no profit but to the subverting of the hearers. And we have seen uh, vain and profane words that, that, that um, continue only unto ungodliness. Or we have seen in various contexts, the overthrowing of the faith of some through the subverting study of the striving about words to no profit. And the consolation that we find within the scope of this, a tremendously affirming statement. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Regardless of the striving about words done among those who claim Christ, regardless of the numbers of men who seek to subvert the truth through manipulation or coercion, the foundation of God standeth strong, steadfast. The foundation of God standeth sure. There was a day when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi in Galilee. And as they were walking along, he and his disciples... He asked them a question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples told him. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Others still, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asked, Whom say ye that I am? To which Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. A great answer, and Jesus told him so. Jesus responded then in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 with this statement. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, some believe this rock to be Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, fine interpretation. I'm comfortable with it. Others believe that, that this rock is Peter himself, not as the first pope or the holy see of the, of the church or anything of the sort, but rather as the apostle through whom the church would be established in the day of Acts. Again, a fine interpretation. We do see that to be the case in the book of Acts. It's a good interpretation. I'm comfortable with it. I'm not comfortable, of course, with him being considered the pope as that is completely anti-biblical. But both of those theories that I mentioned otherwise have merit. Uh, we're not going to cover that today. We've covered that in other contexts. That's not our focus today. That's not our point. But take note of the confidence there. The church of Jesus Christ would be founded upon a rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against that church. Back in our study in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul called the church the church of the living God. And he described it as the pillar and the ground of truth. See, the thing about truth is that truth is self-validating. And we see this in the world all the time. But the funny thing about lies is that the maintenance of a lie requires constant effort. And the reason why it requires such constant effort to be maintained is because it is operating in opposition to reality. And so you see this within the scope of our society all the time, that people have to repeat a lie over and over and over again, and they have to cancel you if you don't believe the lie, and they have to pressure you to believe the lie, and they have to do all of these things because if they don't, if they don't keep that lie ever before your, your, your mind and, and, and in your ears, then reality will start to creep in. And as reality creeps in, that lie inevitably crumbles. But here's the thing. Eventually, 
reality always catches up, doesn't it? The lies must collapse under the weight of truth once truth is known. That's not to say that the lie will not take many with it. That's not to say that everyone will agree with the collapse or be happy about the collapse of the lie. That's not to say that everyone who leaves the lie will intrinsically go to the truth. They may just exchange one lie for another lie, but it is for this reason. It is for the fact that truth is self-validating that the foundation of God does, will, and must stand sure because the foundation of God is truth. Reality, as it was created to function, as it was designed, it is self-validating. It is self-attesting because it is true. And though the majority may never submit themselves to this reality due to the deceitfulness of our own hearts and the deceitfulness of the devil, the foundation of God still stands sure, doesn't it? And this, above all else, gives us confidence, right? Confidence in the creator and sustainer. And so confidence in the word which he has given unto us. Confidence that when God tells us of his love for us, that it's true. John 3.16. Confidence that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13.5. Confidence that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39. Confidence to cast all of my care upon God because... He cares for me, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Confidence that God has my best interests in mind at all times, Luke 11, verse 13. But more than just the confidence that comes from the self-validating nature of truth, from the self-attesting nature of truth, there's not just confidence, but in this there is also great consolation, is there not, for we who are in Christ? A consolation in the times of the unknown, in the times where things are not certain, in the times where things are dangerous, in the times where, where we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what society is going to think of next. We don't know what the church will look like in five years. We don't know what is going to happen, and yet there is a consolation that for all of men's efforts to twist the truth and to pervert the truth, and to silence the truth, to eradicate the truth's existence. God's word yet stands as a beacon of light in the darkness of this world. For countless generations, mankind has attempted to silence the message of God's word by silencing the messenger. And yet the message of Christ rings all the more true in times of great suffering, does it not? For countless generations, mankind has sought to water down the message of the scripture by introducing error and eroding its foundation. Yet this has only laid the foundation for a generation to arise and discover God's truths with more clarity than ever before so that we know for certain we have consolation and confidence in that which God told us in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We have confidence and consolation in what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 89 to 91. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances for all are thy servants. And the confidence and consolation that comes through the words of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. We currently reside in a culture which is quickly becoming hostile, not simply to the tenets of Christianity particularly, but hostile to the essence of truth as reflected even in the very simplest elements of the created order. He hath made them male and female. A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Society now demands that truth in any form take a back seat to narrative called today one's lived experience, thus subjecting reality to the whims and fancies of emotions and desires rather than to objective truth. Nevertheless, Christian, nevertheless, 
the foundation of God standeth sure. We read of Christians around the world suffering for their Christian faith, that to, in order to follow the redeeming person of Jesus Christ, they have given up everything that this life may hold for them. They struggle and they suffer all in the name of, silent, of, 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 of the truth that is in them being silenced, of dimming the light that is in them. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. And Paul gives us a twofold seal that reflects the nature of this foundation. In a world where false teachers abound and the faith of some is subverted and the faith of others is overthrown and the faith of others still rests in doubt, this foundation stands sure, certainly, but who stands on it? Interesting question. Who stands on it? Do I stand on that foundation? Do you stand on that foundation? How much can I strive about words to no profit before it's evident that I don't stand on that foundation? How far can I be subverted while still standing on that foundation? And Paul thus gives a twofold seal, which shows us the nature of this foundation and the nature of those that stand upon it. A seal in the scriptures was a sign. Sometimes we'd call it a signet, something that gave proof of ownership or, or validation of some nature or truth. Paul says the foundation of God stand is sure because the foundation of God carries a twofold seal, carries a twofold mark of God's working carries a twofold mark of God's design. And stay with me for both of these marks because they, they work in tandem. You can't have one without the other. The first part of this seal is that as believers, we recognize that God knows who are His. And it's our privilege to leave that with God. And then second that those who name the name of Christ will depart from iniquity. And we're going to talk through these together. Bear with me as I do so. As you hear the first part, you may say, well, Pastor Wickler, that's not the whole story. That's right, because there's a second part, and we're going to get to it. So just stick with me on that. The Lord calls us to walk through this world with great discernment, particularly as it relates to false doctrine, knowing the dangers that false doctrine poses to the truth. We are called to be discerning. But there is a great responsibility that comes with discernment, isn't there? And that is that we walk this line between assessing a person's spiritual condition based upon their fruit for the sake of fellowship in the church, while simultaneously acknowledging, on the other hand, that the complications of life and the nature of the human condition bring us natural limitations as it relates to knowing what is in the human heart. Let's make this practical for the sake of understanding today. Have you ever heard someone give a wonderful testimony of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? They expound upon their confidence in salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone and in, in the imputed righteousness of Christ as the only hope for them. And then you look at the manner in which they live. And you look at the choices that they make. And they seem to be completely overcome by the world. They have a wonderful testimony of faith. And yet they're dealing with all of the problems that the world has. They're dealing with the relational problems. They're dealing with the emotional problems. They're dealing with the, uh, uh, they, 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 are, they, are, they seem to be um, completely engrossed in the world, in the world's entertainment, in the world's desires, in the world's thoughts, in the world's direction. And you, you, you just wonder, how is that possible? How is it possible that a person can be so engrossed in the world while simultaneously having such a, a clear testimony of an understanding of salvation by grace through faith? And that dissonance, that, that seeming contradiction makes you say, I just, I don't know if they're a believer or not. They, 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 they have this, this, this verbal testimony, but their lives seem to reflect something so different than what I would expect a Christian life to be. And it troubles you. Well, it doesn't have to. It can be troubling. But here's the thing. The Lord knoweth them that are his. 
Aren't you glad that you don't have upon your shoulders the burden of knowing or deciding who is and who is not going to go to heaven? And Christian, not only do you not carry that burden of knowing or deciding who is going to and not go to heaven, but it's not your privilege to assume that responsibility. It's not your job and it's not my job to decide who has been born again and who has not been born again. It's not my job and it's not your job to assess who will be in heaven one day and who will not be in heaven one day. And I've said many times and I'll say it again, I think that when we get there, you and I are gonna be quite surprised who's there and who's not. But here's the thing, the foundation of God stands sure. And it stands upon this seal, that the Lord knows them that are his. And may I encourage you to guard your heart against the propensity to judge the hearts of other men. And as I said, hang on tight, because I'm going to give a counterpoint to this in a little bit. But when Jesus gave that great and oft misrepresented and misinterpreted call in the Gospels to judge not lest you be judged, the spirit of that exhortation was not that we're not able to naturally assess the fruit of a man's life and objectively declare whether or not what they are doing is in line or in keeping with the word of God but rather it was a twofold call. First, to direct your judgment away from others and to place it upon your own life, your own actions, your own intentions. Because Christians, not just Christians, humans have this amazing capacity and tendency that when we are under some measure of conviction, when we are faltering or failing in regard to something in our lives, instead of dealing with it, we go and we look out at others and we look at others and their falterings and their failings. And instead of judging ourselves against the, the righteous standard of God, we judge ourselves against the standard of others to make us feel better about ourselves. And that leads to false judgment and that leads to hypocrisy. And take note within that passage of scripture, we are not told that we cannot judge, but rather take the beam out of your own eye before you take the moat out of your brother's eye. By implication there, the idea is that you've got your problems and he's got his problems. And you ought to be, you are going to naturally know your problems better than you're going to know anyone else's problems. And in every single circumstance, our problems in our own minds and our own knowledge is going to be like a beam. I've got problems you don't even know about. And you've got problems I don't know about. And so if I look at you and I look at me, I've got a beam and you've got a moat. If you look at me, you've got a beam and I've got a moat. Spend, naturally speaking, you're going to be spending more time on a beam than a moat. And so if you are rightly related to your own condition and the condition of others, then you are naturally going to spend a significant amount of time, more time, dealing with your own problems than others. You're going to be spending a significant amount of time and, and, and significant more effort and priority dealing with your own problems, knowing, okay, they've got their problems, whatever, but I've got my own problems, let's deal with those. So to whatever degree we do make judgment calls, we are called to make sure that they are righteous judgments, not presumptive, not preemptive, not biased, not assumptive, but rather we are judging judgments righteously. Just as Jesus said in John 7, 24, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgments. And so we are called to recognize that the foundation of God stands sure. And the reason why, number one, is because God knows those that are his. I might look around and I might say, Lord, everyone is subverted, similar to Elijah after the Mount Carmel experience. And God says, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to, the, to, to Baal. You don't know that, but I do. See, on a, in Elijah's day, Elijah was sure that the foundation of God was crumbling and God says, no, no, Elijah, the, the foundation of God stands sure. I know who are mine. I know who are mine. And it's the same today. You look out at churches, you look out at ministries, you look out at, at the overcoming nature of culture within, within the church and within society and you say, surely things must be crumbling before our eyes and surely there, must, there, there can't be any left. And God says, no, I have my remnant. Don't worry, 
I know who are mine. And that brings us to the second part of this seal. The first part, that the Lord knoweth them that are his. I may not know whether a man who preaches a generally sound gospel but lives seemingly overcome by the world as a believer, but that's okay. It's not my job to know. God knows, and I'll leave that with him. I may not know whether that neighbor who says he believes in Jesus but is overcome by the world is actually a believer or not, but that's okay. God knows. It's not my job. I'll leave that with God. But that being said, here's the other side of this coin. The second part of this seal by which we acknowledge that the foundation of God will stand sure. The counterpoint to my determination not to judge the hearts of men and the disposition of men toward God based upon appearance, but to judge righteous judgments. And the second part of this seal is, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The counterpoint is that while it is not my job, my privilege, my right, or even my capacity to know who is or who is not going to stand before God justified one day in Christ, it is in fact my privilege and my capacity to know what a Christian generally looks like. And I'm not talking about standards. I'm not talking about what a Christian would generally uh, do as it relates to what they wear or where they go or what they say or whatever the case may be. But the, the very fact that they that name the name of Christ are headed in, a, in the same direction. And that direction is Christ's direction, which means that all they that name the name of Christ are in the process of departing from iniquity. That built into the regenerated heart of those who have been born again is a desire to obey God's word. And this doesn't mean that Christians will always agree on what it means even to depart from iniquity because of subversive teachings, because of different experiences, because of different propensities, because of different vulnerabilities in our lives, because of the natural failings of human understanding and of maturity, because of the deceits and the attacks of the devil, because of the weakness of the human condition and the pragmatism that can easily creep in. Any number of reasons why we may not agree. We know that God knows, right? The human condition tends to see the world in shades of gray because of the things that we, we know and don't know. But God, we know that it's black and white to God. But here's what we do know. They that name the name of Christ have an inherent desire to depart from iniquity. In fact, this is one of the primary evidences that the Bible gives us as to whether or not a person is a believer. Uh, this is me drawing out a systematic context to God's word. But in my study, generally speaking, we would regard five evidences that the Bible gives us that a person is in fact a believer, is in fact in Christ. The first evidence is that they have a love for the believers. 1 John 3 verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Recall that the book of 1 John is not a book to tell you how to be saved. It is a book to tell you how to abide in Christ. It is a book that, that, that tells you how to be living in a manner that is victorious. And one of, the, one of the, the evidences of victorious Christian living is that I love my brothers in Christ. I love the brethren. Secondly, the second evidence of salvation, the second evidence that gives us confidence that we are in Christ is that I bear the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 24 and 25 tell us, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Third, an understanding of the spiritual. We often call this Holy Spirit illumination. 1 John 2, 27 says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Fourth, evidence of salvation is conviction and chastening for sin. Hebrews 12, verses 7 and 8 tell us, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he of whom the Father chasteneth? What son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Then ye are illegitimate children. 
and not a true child of God if you are not under chastisement for open rebellion against your father. And then fifth, a desire to obey God's command. And this is the one that we just spoke of. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. It's wonderful if you have a date written in your Bible that tells you when you made a conscious decision to follow Christ. It is wonderful if you have a memory of making a definitive decision to follow Christ. It is wonderful if you had a, 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 a unique and a different feeling at the moment that you decided that you wanted to follow Christ. But memories are notoriously unreliable, aren't they? I have a hard time remembering what I ate for breakfast this morning. I have a hard time remembering which child has which name assigned to them in my family. Memories are notoriously unreliable. Feelings are notoriously unreliable, aren't they? I can be having a bad day, and I go home, and there's a cookie sitting on the counter, and I eat that cookie, and all of a sudden, my bad day has become a good day. All of a sudden, my feelings about the day have completely changed because I got a cookie, and it was delicious. Am I really going to trust my memory or my feelings to be the, the foundation upon which I rest my confidence in salvation? Is there really no more than that? Well, there is. And the Bible tells us that there is. What is entirely reliable? Well, the fruit of my life. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that a tree is known by its fruit, that an evil tree cannot bear good fruit, and a good tree cannot bear evil fruit. If I am bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then I know I'm in Christ. I can dress up a tree, I can paint it, I can trim it to look like something it isn't, but once it bears fruit, there's no mistaking. A tree might look like an apple tree, but if it bears oranges, you know what we know about that tree? It's an orange tree. I don't know who will be in heaven, and neither do you. We know that every person who will get there will get there through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. We know that every person who will get there will get there by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I can't see into the hearts of men, and neither can you. I can't interpret all the uniquenesses and nuances of how a person disposes himself toward Christ, and neither can you. But I do know this, that to one degree or another, any who are gods will be compelled by virtue of the working of the Holy Spirit within him to depart from iniquity, because the foundation of God is sure and has this seal, that the Lord knows who are his, and that they that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And that part I can discern, can't I? Not whether a person is in Christ, but whether a person is bearing the visible marks of being in Christ. So that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, when Jesus gives his treatise on what we would typically consider church discipline, and he calls for men to first confront a transgressor alone, and then if he will not listen, to confront him in a group of two or three. And then if he will not listen to them, then to confront him before the assembly. And if he will not regard the assembly and their rebuke, then the assembly regard him as a heathen man and a publican. The church here is not conferring upon that man salvation or revoking from that man his salvation, but rather only that by the standard of God's word, this man is not walking in line with sound doctrine. He is not walking in consistency with a man who loves God because he is walking in open rebellion. He is walking in open disunity with his brother and it's his fault and he refuses to do anything about it and that is not what believers do and so what it reflects is a church that has no confidence in him. It means nothing as to whether he will or will not be in heaven it means everything as it relates to how the church disposes itself toward that person because he's not walking in alignment with Christ. We see a similar example in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul is speaking about a man in the church who is having an inappropriate physical relationship with his mother-in-law. And Paul said at the end of that chapter, I wrote unto you not to keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or else you would have to come out of this world. If we separate ourselves from the adulterers and the fornicators and the liars and the evil, ha hateful people in the, uh, in the world, then we have separated ourselves from the world. 
We're no longer salt. We're no longer light because we have hidden our light under a bushel. We are, we are no longer in the world. Therefore, we cannot reach the world. But he said, I did write unto you that if any man call himself a brother and is a fornicator, with such an one know not to eat. He is calling himself a brother, but he is not bearing the fruit of one who is rightly related to Christ. Now, again, that doesn't mean he's not a believer. It means he's not departing from iniquity. If you want to insist that you are a believer, but you, you in also insist on living in iniquity, I'm not going to tell you that you're not a believer. I don't know. The Lord knows who are his. I don't know if you're a believer or not. But see, that's the whole point. I don't know because you're not bearing any fruit. I am going to tell you that you aren't living in a manner that is consistent with a believer, which means there's something definitively wrong in your spiritual life. I don't know if it's that you're not a believer, whether you don't have the Holy Spirit at all, or whether you are grieving the Holy Spirit, there will at least be chastening at that point, right? But as I look at the fruit of your life, I don't see those marks borne out. I don't see you bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I don't see you loving the brethren. I don't see you desiring to do what is right. I don't see you doing these things. I don't see these evidences in you. Therefore, there's something wrong in your spiritual life. And believer, this is the point. You don't know what's in my heart and I don't know what is in yours. But if you are not bearing the evidences of salvation, those five evidences that we listed, if those are not bearing out in your life, or if you cannot look back and see those things bearing out in your life, then you need to, under, you, you need to question why. Maybe you're not in Christ at all. Or maybe you're walking in car carnality. But whichever it is, there's something wrong and it needs to be made right. Get yourself right. And upon this is a sure foundation that as men parse the word of God and strive about words to no profit, and I don't know what's going on and I don't know who the subverters are and who the subvert, for, subverted are, a man comes into the church and he starts espousing false doctrine. I don't know if he's just been subverted. He's just heard a bunch of stuff. Or if he's a subverter and he is walking as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he is not one of the sheep, but he is a goat. He, he has no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and he is here only to, to devour and to destroy. I don't know if he's a subverter or if he's a subverted, but the Lord does. But here's what I can tell you. When a person comes in living and espousing false doctrine, he is one who claims to name the name of Christ, but he has not departed from iniquity. And so I know there's something wrong. And because I can see that, we can protect ourselves from it, and the foundation of God will stand sure. If the fruit of a man's doctrinal stance makes him arrogant, judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous, if the fruit of a man's stance divides him from other believers, makes allowances for carnality, complicates the Bible where the Bible presents simplicity, confuses the Bible where the Bible presents clarity, if the fruit of these stances eat away at the faith of believers as doth a canker, it's not for me to determine whether or not that man is in Christ, but it is for me to see the fruit of his teaching, the fruit of his life, the perversion, the iniquity, the subversion, and to reject that way of thinking and that way of living outright. And it is this general principle that the next two verses call us to remember. So Paul writes in verses 20 and 21, but in a great house there are not only Vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, that would be the dishonorable things, he shall be made a vessel unto honor. He shall be a vessel unto honor, excuse me, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. In any house, there are two types of vessels. There are common vessels and there are special vessels. If we think of this in terms of your own houses, perhaps you have what you would consider everyday plates and cups, and then you would have the fine china that you'd pull out on a special occasion. 
And this is what Paul means when he speaks of vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. He's not saying that there are vessels that, that are, are good and are righteous and that there are vessels that are evil and God hates them. They're simply vessels that are more common and vessels that are more honorable. There are vessels which are elevated in value due to their certain characteristics and other vessels which are demoted in value due to certain characteristics. And what Paul is saying is that in the kingdom of God, there are both vessels of honor and there are vessels of dishonor. In God's house, there are believers who are dishonorable. And again, that doesn't explicitly imply that, that, you are, that, 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 that this is evil or that this is rejected by God. But these vessels of dishonor are common. They are common. They are in Christ, the Lord knows they are His, but they're still stuck in some rut of the world. They love the things of this world or the priorities that are in this world. They, they have not fled from the lusts of this world. They have been subverted to some degree or another from the truth. And because of this, they remain in a measure of spiritual immaturity. They haven't really grown or progressed in their spiritual walk for the Lord. And so they're not very usable to the Lord. They're still there. They're, the Lord knows they are His, but they name the name of Christ and they haven't quite fully embraced departing from iniquity. They haven't yielded. They haven't given in. They haven't died to self. They're common. They're dishonorable in that sense. God cannot elevate them and use them in the way He might desire to because they're not usable. And then there are the honorable vessels. Those who are of greater worth, not to God, but greater worth to the kingdom of God. God died for all men. So the idea that, that certain people are of greater worth or lesser worth to God is a, uh, an absolutely wrong notion, unbiblical to its core. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our value to God in our sinful state is great. But our value to his kingdom is maybe not great if we're common. But there are those who are of greater worth to the kingdom of God, who have counted all things but loss, who have studied to show themselves approved unto God, workmen needed not to be ashamed. And Paul says that if we will as believers purge ourselves of this tendency to strive about words to no profit, purge ourselves from those who would seek to subvert the hearers, purge ourselves from the profane and vain babblings that increase only unto more ungodliness. And as we'll see from verse 22 in just a moment, purge ourselves from youthful lusts, that we will be in God's kingdom vessels of honor and so be better fitted for the master's use be fully prepared for the good work that God might have for us. And this is the call of the day. It is not for you and me to tell one another whether or not we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. It's not for me to tell you that you have or have not, or, me, or you to tell me. Most here have a testimony of salvation, whether you bear the marks that we've discussed it or not, uh, already or not. But there are most certainly Christians in this room who are vessels of dishonor, of wood and of clay, of wood and of earth, vessels that are common. And there are others among us who are vessels of honor, of gold and silver, are more usable to God. Some who are willing to purge themselves of their own ideas in order to follow the Lord and others who have chosen to maintain their own ideas and priorities at the expense of God's word. And do take note that this can change. You who are a vessel of honor today might in a year's time be a vessel of dishonor through your own personal choices. You can take back those things from God. And you who are vessels of dishonor today might be in a year fully usable by God unto every good work. But if that is to take place, it will only be as you and I purge ourselves from iniquity, from vanity, from subversion, from subversive study, from fleshly lusts. And it is for this reason that we elevate careful study, not so that we can look at others and judge them, not so that we can feel good about ourselves and how much we know and how little others know, 
not convinced that we have figured everything out, but certainly eager to ensure that what we believe is what God has taught so that we might purge ourselves from those things that are iniquitous, so that we might be vessels unto honor, so that we might be sanctified and meet for the master's use. Ever careful to guard ourselves from being distracted by the ever-growing amount of teaching which serves only to tickle the ears rather than to feed the soul. Serves only to feed me guilt rather than free my conscience. And so the call in verse 22 Flee also youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The reality of what we face is a point of decision. The fact that this concept of vessels of honor and dishonor can fluctuate, can change, is well realized in verse 22. So he says, flee youthful lusts. That word literally youthful there meaning juvenile, pertaining to one's youth. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. This speaks of those youthful and arrogant passions. The passions and energies of youth have truly great value. Their years of industry, their years of energy, but they can also be years of waste, can't they? We reason that we have later years to get serious about life, and so we live those early years in waste. We persist in lusts that are unbecoming of saints, and unfortunately, many of these lusts can become habits, strongholds, and thus go well beyond our youth, hang on tight throughout our lives. So Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And this is the sum. That the lusts, these youthful lusts, these fleshly lusts, they war against the soul, if not the body. They are accompanied by spiritual leanness. And much to the rather, if you would be a vessel of honor, if you would be a vessel that is sanctified and meet for the master's use, greatly usable for the kingdom of God, it is your privilege to intentionally follow a different path. It is your privilege to die daily, to wake up with a determination not to follow these lusts that war against the soul, and rather to count all things but loss and to follow Christ, to pursue the virtues of Christ, let every man that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity and follow after righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. I die daily, yielding those things which do not profit in determination to pursue those things that will, that I may be sanctified and meet for the Master's use. See, because the foundation of God stands sure, that rock is going to stand whether I'm on it or not. That rock is going to stand whether I'm working for it or not but there is a reward that comes to he that stands on that rock, is there not? The Lord knows those that are his. And there's also a reward to those who are meet for the master's use, to those who are sanctified, to those who are fit, to those who are honorable vessels. And I want those rewards. And take note finally, I don't do it alone. We join together with them that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart without hypocrisy, and we exhort and encourage one another, and we grow together, and we hold each other accountable, and we follow together that we may be those vessels unto honor. So this teaching presents for us both a great consolation and a great determination. The consolation is that the foundation of God stands sure. Regardless of the world's efforts, God's truths are baked into the fabric of history, they will prevail. God isn't going anywhere. God's church isn't going anywhere. God's truths are not going anywhere. And then the determination. First, God knows those that are His. And second, that those who are God's will depart from iniquity. 
and that by God's grace, in order to be a vessel sanctified and meet for the master's use, I will be one who will purge myself from these youthful lusts, these fleshly lusts that war against the soul and commit myself to being a vessel of honor. The question is, how are you doing today? As you walk through those five evidences of salvation, can you say that you see those in your own life? If not, Christian, there's something deeply spiritually wrong. Is it that you're not a believer? I don't know. Is it that you're walking contrary to sound doctrine? Maybe. But there's something wrong. And you need to work with the Lord. You can come talk to me and work with me and we will figure out what it is. Are you a vessel unto honor today, Christian? Or are you a common vessel in the master's house? You have your purposes, but you will never become in the kingdom of God truly meet for the master's use on the path you're on. Is it time to purge yourself from the fleshly lusts, the youthful lusts, those things that war against your soul, that hinder you from being usable to the kingdom of God? Are you that vessel of honor or are you a vessel of dishonor? Let us strive unto that determination to be a vessel of honor. Having purged yourself from errors, having purged yourself from these fleshly lusts, having purged yourself from the subversion of striving to no profit that works only unto ungodliness and overthrows the faith of some. Let us strive knowing that the foundation of God stands sure so I don't have to worry about that, knowing that the Lord knows who are His so I don't have to worry about that, freeing me to focus upon being the best I can be and exhorting one another together with them that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart, exhorting one another to be vessels of honor for God. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.